0: welcome to glam city this is our second super season in history land and we are excited to be bringing you 20 episodes in 2018 my name's anna clark and as i mentioned this is glam city we're going to lift the lid and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvelous archivists curious curators and purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries libraries archives and museums that's glam that's the glam sector across Australia. Now Tamsin is gallivanting overseas doing a bit of research and she'll be back in time for the launch of History Lab on May the 16th. As you might be aware, History Lab is our upcoming podcast looking at some of the interesting, maybe unheard of aspects of our history. But on this episode of Glam City, we're going to get to discuss how we can know our cultural institutions a little better. And here to talk to me about those cultural institutions and how they can re-engage their adult audiences after hours, I'm joined by Maxine Couter. director of Museo Filiac, which is an independent company that produces bespoke experiences and content for cultural institutions. Welcome, Maxine. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. You gave an amazing lightning talk at Glam Slam a few weeks ago, and everyone was really G'd by your talk. It was so enthusiastic and you really, I don't know, got to the core of what it means to present a museum exhibit that everybody can take something away from.
1: Right. Well, thanks. I, I really enjoyed talking to everyone at the event too. It was fun, a fun time. And everyone was so responsive, which was really positive for me because um, I haven't had many opportunities to speak to people on that sort of level before. Mm. So it was good.
0: Mm. You kind of gave some clues about what goes into an interesting exhibit and I guess... Some of the very raw interaction that can occur between uh, a museum and its audiences, like a vulnerability, I guess you talk about.
1: Yeah, so we sort of talk about the idea of not just wanting engagement, but wanting intimacy with uh, people. So it's particularly talking about sort of more sort of older audiences rather than um, school, um, primary school kids and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of really interested in treating people like adults and revealing to them how uh, museums make history or how galleries and libraries uh, preserve our history, what techniques they use, and then give people the tools to make their own perspectives. It's essentially our aim. And I suppose because we don't actually work in any of these, work for any of these cultural institutions, we're a bit freer. mm To say what might need to be said. Yes, or what we think people might be interested in hearing. Mm. I I personally think there's a tendency for some um, institutions to shy away from difficult subject matter because of the way that they think people will perceive them mm. or their authority. And I think maybe that's a bit of a mistake because maybe that's where the good stuff is for people. In so. the
0: gaps and the and the sort of edgy areas that yeah. where you're not necessarily on firm ground.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'm not sort of... I guess I wouldn't want to, you know, I don't want to speak on anyone else's behalf. So I I feel like people would probably feel the same way if, if they were given the tools to understand how these institutions actually make these perspectives, then they can figure out a way to make their own. Mm-hmm. And then that's interesting. Uh, that makes these places interesting suddenly. Mm-hmm.
0: You've got a degree in museum studies with yeah. a special interest in historical narrative making. Yeah. And you're uh, museophiliac. Am I saying that right?
1: Museophiliac. That's Muse- good. Museophiliac. It's basically just to make people
0: stumble over their Think words. Think about it. Yeah, excellent. I'm <laughs> um, feeling really... Uh, it's not a real word. <laughs> feeling really pro here. Um, your co-creator, Emma Flannery, has a background in prehistoric organic chemistry and geology, so you're like the ultimate history
1: nerds. <laughs> <laughs> we are pretty nerdy. Um, and we've... Both spent heaps of time uh, in museums and collections and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we are a bit, bit nerdy. Yeah,
0: <laughs> what gave you the idea? Were you just sort of, you know, was it serendipitous? You bumped into each other at the museum, or well, had just my you? partner in life as well okay. as,
1: as well as <laughs> crime. So, um, no. So I came up with the idea essentially because I have this other life as a performer, and I noticed that lots of cultural institutions were opening up late and they were calling for pitches for ideas for people who would come and perform in their spaces and that a lot of these performances had nothing to do with the museum or the library that was opening up late for them. So um, I started pitching ideas that would blend maybe performance or or sort of elements of sound design or whatever to reveal their either their space or their collections or the history in some way and so then um, so then I just sort of got the idea that maybe we should keep doing this and we kept uh, working on it sort of refining the way that we design these shows and these experiences and um, most recently we sort of hit upon um, a product that kind of can transfer, which is this idea called Tall Tales and True, which we go into a collection or a gallery and we intentionally bring these other perspectives to it.
0: Do you? Why hasn't this been done before?
1: I don't know. Is it
0: because museums, like you were alluding to before, are sort of take themselves quite seriously? What's the, is there a barrier to kind of just a museum being a performative space, do you think?
1: I don't know that there is a a barrier, but I think maybe there's a barrier between people who are performers and people who are are historians, and also I think that sometimes there's a lack of understanding from people who would be pitching um, these types of performances Mm. um, about how political and how difficult um, Mm. cultural institutions are to work with. Um, and libraries, you know, the people who work in them take their jobs really seriously, as they should. And it's very difficult to find a curator or a librarian who is um, willing to sort of give you the freedom required to do that. And I think so when we met the city's librarian from the city of Sydney, she was so open to us basically... Our whole pitch was that we were going to tell people really convincing hist- lies about history and they were going to be so convincing that they would have elements of historical truth in them. And as even as we were developing the show, I was saying to Emma, what are we doing? <laughs> Why are we doing this? And the answer is because it's entertaining. And also it reveals to people how critical theories work and that mm. sort of thing. And To the City of Sydney's credit and the librarians and archivists there, they went with us along the ride and they worked with us on the script and there were certain things they weren't willing to concede and other things that they were just happy to to go along with and it was a really enjoyable experience I think for them and and for us as well. I can imagine it would actually be quite
0: hard for a historian or an archivist or librarian to kind of get away with that in your day job so maybe your performance background enables you to sort of bend the rules and and, and opens up new questions and discussions.
1: It does so for example one of like we had three objects Um, we had this was a a theatre style thing where people sat down Um, and there was a stage and we had three objects from the collection and we had three experts and... Were they performers too? They were paid actors, yeah. And um, each of them proposed a history for this particular object and only one of them was true. And it was true in the sense that it was the story that the city of Sydney was telling about the object in an upcoming exhibition. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, we we basically... We had a... um, I think they had a this really wonderful object which was this certificate of certificate of athletic proficiency which the city used to give away to kids in the 1930s or something or 40s and so we made up three one story was that it was actually a work of art by Fiona Hall and um, it was drawing attention to the loss of um, park space in the city and uh, another one was that um, yes it wasn't a a certificate of athletic proficiency, but it was actually the first one ever awarded, and it was awarded to the great granddaughter of one of uh, the previous premiers of of Australia, and her name was Marion Reid, which was the name on the on the certificate. And then we found this previous premier of New South Wales, George Reid, and um, we sort of made up this story that she had polio, so it was this um, it was this um, symbolic act. And the real story is obviously that these were parks set aside because um, there was increasing traffic flow in Sydney Mm -hmm. and there was concern that children didn't have anywhere to play. So they made these parks and they gave away these athletic proficiency certificates and each of the parks had a library, which was really cool detail. That You know, just bringing that out to bear in a story way and getting people to think about all these other elements Mm. of how you might read an object... So from a printing perspective you might read this object as really interesting because it's you know a particular type of printing process and and this kind of thing and getting people to think about things in different ways mm, and its provenance and
0: yeah. so on I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we had Nathan Sentence from the museum on here in our last season and he was talking about even changing the labeling that for some indigenous artifacts they used to they would say maker unknown. <laughs> um, and he was, he, and he talks about the importance of that. You know, what does mm-hmm. that say about the museum, and what does that re- reveal about our assumptions about Indigenous culture when it was collected? Absolutely, perhaps in the 1930s or wherever.
1: Yeah, wherever. we recently did a tour with um, in, at the Australian Museum, which was uh, just a walking tour, and it was just confined to the 200 Treasures Gallery, and so one element of that was we basically encouraged people, we're basically telling people how to make their own meanings and we're giving them three questions to ask of each object. So the first question was, what is it? And so talking to people about getting people to understand that what is it is not a really simple question and we use the example of a wood carving that they have in there which is called which on the label called mother and child and have sort of drew attention to people that it's it's about what is it but it's also about who is it that is telling me what it is Mm. so the museum is telling me that this is a wood carving called mother and child and then it's from the pacific islands and it's from a particular date and it was donated by to the museum by a particular person So to one person that might be seen as a really good example of Pacific Islander wood carving techniques and to another person it might be seen as um, some kind of object of trade or a souvenir and evidence of economy and that kind of stuff and then to another person it might also be seen as like the Pacific Island culture's sophisticated grasp of like the Christian gospel that was being preached to them at at that time. So it's sort of opening up people's understanding of the fact that what is written on that label has been written there by a particular person at a particular time. It doesn't make it wrong. doesn't make one better than the other or whatever. I'm not making any judgment calls, but there are many ways that that could be read. Mm. So, yeah, those kinds of questions are really interesting to us and those are the sorts of things that we want, I think, people as adults are keen on, mm. you know. Mm. Lots of the people going to these uh, places have, you know, they're well-educated. They know something about what you're talking to them about. They understand critical theory in some way. And if they don't, these sorts of ways of saying things come as... New information, which mm. is really exciting for them. Mm.
0: There's some research um, a little while ago by historians here at UTS, Paula Hamilton and Paul Ashton, and they did this major survey of Australians about war. You know about their historical attitudes, and one of the questions they asked is how reliable certain historical sources were. You know, your history teacher or a politician, and museums came up tops as right. the most reliable purveyors or sources of historical information, and you're unsettling that in a really interesting way. Do you think museums are increasingly um, happy to give that ground, you know, to concede, contest and historical subjectivity?
1: I think it depends on the type of museum. I think art art galleries are probably more because it's almost like this unsettling... Of that is in some ways seen to be maybe even the art practice of the art gallery you know like a, a new artistic practice to subvert mm-hmm. the the place's authority but other, institu- other types of institutions might find it a bit harder like libraries and archives in particular, I mean you know, a city's archive or a natural history museum or something like that might find these things a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't know I mean I sort of understand where it comes from but I think that Unsettling it, I mean, I have had experiences when we were doing we've done tours and we've had people in front of us who have openly asked us the question, like, you know, why what's the point of um of questioning those things? And it's not to be intentionally like bratish, you know, and just, just be this big brat who's gonna go into the museum or, or wherever and say, Oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Sure. It's not that about that. It's about acknowledging that there are many, many ways to tell a story.
0: And do you think it's important for all museums to take that on or are there some no-go areas where you could sort of sense, oh, this is pushing, pushing that authority or mm. a, a little bit too far? I
1: think definitely um, there are some areas where it's a no-go. So I think you were talking earlier about that, uh, the lightning talk at the slam event Mm. and my talk was about dating your audience and there was somebody from the um, sydney jewish museum Mm. i mean obviously that's not an appropriate way to think about i mean maybe maybe if you stretch that idea to a certain degree you can but memorials and things like that i think probably um i wouldn't personally think uh, unless I had some stake in actual personal stake in the history, yeah, where I felt I had actual authority to yeah, be speaking. Yeah,
0: uh, last sh- last uh, season we had Michael Harvey, the assistant director from the National Maritime Museum, on, and he made this um, interesting point, which we've been sort of talking around today, which is that museums should be uh, safe places for dangerous ideas. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that?
1: I do. I agree with that statement. It's just I don't know how realistic. It is, And I think that I'm more of the view, and it's easier for me to have these annoying views that I don't have to back up in my day-to-day work, Mm. because I don't work for a cultural institution. But I think that museums are very – they're like churches in that – they're filled with people who have been this huge stake, people have been working in them for many, many years, people who have been studying, for, studying them for a long time and have just started working in them, people who have brought collections to the music. They're so donors interest, special interest groups, sponsors, increasingly the influence mm-hmm. of sponsors and that sort of thing, because museums and ga- galleries need to generate their own income. I don't know how realistic it is for them to be safe places. And I think maybe a better idea would be if the museum would understand its personality a bit and what personality it's bringing to this collection of objects it has a personality that is created by all of these people and it might be a really difficult personality and that's okay it can still be part of the conversation it can still be in the room but opening it up and allowing all these other sort of voices Mm. I kind of sometimes feel like in an effort to be to strive for this thing called a safe space that, that sometimes institutions end up seeming really personality-less and this is going to sound really harsh but also sort of like a little bit desperate you know like like the uncool kid trying to throw the party you know and And we've all been there yeah yeah (laughs) Um, yes one of my worst life experiences my eight year eight year, (laughs) eight year old party where no one all right no one came but i'm over it it's fine um yeah, I think uh yeah, thinking about that I just I think it's I don't think it's possible to be a safe space. I think it's possible to create a a space that is almost not like the museum if the museum can take its voice here and say okay, we're going to allow these other voices in as well. In fact, we're not we don't need to allow them. Why don't you just come in? We're just part of it. I think that might be useful facilitating conversations. Yeah, perhaps. or just being a bit more open to the idea that people don't need your permission. Mm. You know, I, I think one of the reasons why um, I started Museophiliac was, you know, I have spent a long time studying um, art and culture and museums and spaces like that and had a lot of ideas and worked in cultural institutions in Australia and around the world. And I just didn't want to sit around for the next 20 years waiting for my turn to get to say something about what was on the wall. And I don't think anyone should have to wait. Mm. You know, you don't mm. need... Um, permission Mm. and nor does the audience potentially. that's right And that's kind of our 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 message is that you know your your tax money Mm. is going to the preservation of these collections and i don't mean that in a antagonistic way i mean that but like join the conversation yeah have have some fun with them and 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 get to know them
0: yeah you're listening to glam city on 2ser 107.3 to download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so it helps people find us. On this episode, we're speaking with Maxine Counter, Director of Museophiliac. I'm going to get it. At some point, <laughs> museophileia, an independent company that produces bespoke experiences and content for cultural institutions. So you've talked a little bit about um, your work with the City of Sydney, mm-hmm. and you recently worked for the Australian Museum on their two hundred. The it's sort of, the
1: uh, the Westpac Long Gallery two hundred Treasures uh, exhibition that they have
0: there. What went into that experience? Did they contact you out of the blue and sort of say, "Hey, we want you to mess around with our stuff," or do you pitch? Uh, How does it yeah, work? you pitch
1: you pitch so the wonderful tanya goldberg and matt Ravier that work there in um adult edu- engagement i think it is uh we're running culture up late and they um yeah they call for pitches essentially from people that they think might be interested and um and someone i knew suggested that they speak with me so we developed the idea together and we produced emma and i produced the uh the tour
0: Mm. And what other, you talked about that amazing wood carving just mm. a moment ago, but what other sort of, what were the, one or two of the other yeah. exhibits that you messed around with, if I can use that term? Well, we didn't
1: actually mess around with that one. We just used that one as an example for one of our questions. So we had three questions okay. What is it? How has it been changed to be mm-hmm. in the museum? was another question. So for that one, we talked to people about the fact that in order to get objects into the museum, they need to be changed. And the museum has lots of methods for this. And um, so that one was, we looked at the frogs of the greater Mekong, which is which are actually not frogs at all. They're actually 3D printouts of frogs. So uh, when is a frog not a mm-hmm. frog?
0: Je ne sais pas.
1: Well, <laughs> when I was in high school, there was a door, a, pa- a long hallway in my high school. And one time I I just discovered René McGree. Thank you. And I, and I put a, do- a sign on the door that said, this is not a door and watched people walk up to it. You've got anyway. a,
0: lo- a long track record in... <laughs> Messing with people's sense of <laughs> historical objects.
1: So another one that we did was, um, so the last question that we asked was, um, why is it in the gallery? Mm-hmm. So what, what what significance does it have? And we talked about the fact that you shouldn't always think that some, something got into the gallery based on some sort of infallible, you know, merit-based Mm -hmm. System and we looked at they have a a funnel web spider in a jar, which is like the first funnel web that ever killed someone and it's been completely squashed. It's got no no scientific value. It's just (laughs) really quirky. Um, So yeah, those those sorts of things. What was
0: the takeout from there for you guys? What what did people like? What were they sort of in? What did they enjoy? Talking about and thinking about. I mean, you could potentially put a fake thing in one of those tours and sort of, like you did with the city of Sydney, for example. You yeah. Know, there are sort of, there's a fine line between what's, you know, what's authentic and what's significant in yeah. our historical imagination.
1: Yeah. So I think people were really, we also then sort of took two objects that we explored in detail and that's where we started to tell a lie. People were really fascinated by the idea of, you know, that. Things might not be there just because they they take it for granted that things have historical relevance, or they had no idea that the, like you know the frogs were three D printouts, or that um, the thylacine pup that's there. You know, we talked to them about the theatre of the museum. There's a thylacine pup in a jar, but it's not even a It's not even the thing. It's it's a it's a three D printout as well. But it's been presented to you as if it's the thing. Mm. That's part of what's going on in the museum, mm. and, and it's good to know that because then you. So sort of get tickled by the museum's idea of theatre, and then also you know its its motivations for, mm. for doing those things.
0: Are there other, um, if you could get your hands on any cultural institution and its holdings, mm. what would it be? What would be next on Museophiliac's, um wish list?
1: Um, well, we've been talking about the Art Gallery of New South Wales and sort of its gallery. W- this permanent gallery, I mean, I know it changes a lot, but sure. it's modern yep. collection. And just we were talking about maybe doing a bit of a tour that basically looks at each artwork from the perspective of who donated it to the museum and talk about who they are and, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's one thing that's never missing off a, off a label in a museum. Who put it in the museum? Mm. It's really interesting mm. detail. And what does
0: that say about ownership, I suppose? Mm. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of our fantastic show, this week we're coming to Glam Slam now, so that's okay. our regular segment where we talk about what's up mm-hmm. and what's happening.
1: What's coming up for your calendar in Historyland? Well, we are starting um, a podcast series as well, mm-hmm. so we're going to basically do a podcast series which sort of takes these tours that we've done and makes them available to people, whether and sort of makes them work in the gallery or outside of it. So we're trying to basically inject a bit of a renegade voice into the galleries um, It's like
0: an alt walking tour Yeah of, uh, <laughs>
1: so like you know if you're standing in the gallery yeah. then you could, should turn to your left now and there'll be something there and that kind of thing and we're hoping to sort of develop that into something a bit more a uh, bit, bit bigger type yep. of product um, in the future hmm. Yeah
0: On my Tamson's not here to ask me so I'm just going to ask myself what are you doing Anna? Uh, well <laughs> I am going to Belfast in a couple of weeks for, uh, for a conference and I have just booked myself into a Belfast walking tour Ah. I'm sort of really interested in, I guess, the question of, you know, sectarianism, basically, because I grew up with the sense of my grandparents talking about it and, you know, that people wouldn't like to live next door to a Catholic or a Protestant or Mm. they'd cross the road or it sort of seems in terms of historical generations and how quickly things can change, I just cannot imagine that feeling of... I suppose, yeah, religious mistrust. So that's what he's on. That sounds my cool. calendar. Yeah. yeah. That would be interesting to yeah, work with would. as a, yeah, I'll bring I'll back some down. hot tips. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website at 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And hit us up on Twitter. You'll find Tamsin in absentia under cap and gown and me under at Anna Hope Clark. And where do we find you, Maxine.
1: Uh, yep, so the best place is www.museophiliac, so it's dot com, and we're on Instagram and Twitter, so you can hear us up anywhere, Facebook, that kind of stuff. Fantastic. This podcast
0: is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can shoot us an email. That's glamcity at 2 com. And thank you so much to Maxine Couter from Museophiliac, for joining us today. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.